You know, it feels great to sing those words, doesn't it? To say, God, I really want you to be the only one that matters. You know, I find myself sometimes in worship singing words and say, well, I wish that was more true on Monday than it was on Sunday. I, I want to live that out, God. And we're going to find the Thessalonians have that same challenge. How do you live out that idea of putting God first in the midst of a society and a world and a culture that is antithesis to that idea, that's constantly pushing back? The pressures will push you one direction and then it'll push you another direction. And can you stay firm in the midst of it? Just to give you an idea of what the Thessalonians were up against during this time is that the emperors of Rome have been slowly setting themselves up to deification, to set themselves up as God. So you say you're following Jesus, God. No, no, no. Rome is God. The emperor is God. And you've got to follow us. To give an idea, a little bit of the history and who's the Roman emperor during this time, the emperors have slowly gone from Julius Caesar, Augustus, uh, Caligula was just assassinated before Claudius comes to power. And this is uh, the guy who's in charge during the book of Thessalonians was written. Now, this is so key because the emperors are going to go from you ought to give tribute to me to you can worship me among the gods. to eventually they're going to say, I am the only God you can worship by the time we get to Trajan and Hadrian. But we're at a, a particular critical juncture of time where the emperors are beginning to demand worship as a culture. And the Thessalonians are right in the middle of that. Now, Caligula has just been assassinated. And when Claudius takes over, he decides to make sure that all of the world knows that the gods put him there. So he changes the money, the denarii. He prints his face on it, which was sort of typical. But imagine, again, in American politics, every time we got a new president, if they said, hey, no more Washington on the dollar bill. No more, no more Abe Lincoln on the five dollars. It's my face. It's, it's Bush's face. It's, it's Obama's face. I mean, this was what emperors would do to make sure you knew every time you made a money exchange, you owe that opportunity to me. But here's what's amazing about what Claudius did. He wanted to let you know that when Caligula was assassinated, it wasn't just somebody killed him. The gods killed him. So for one of the first times in history, he put on the backside of the denarii, the Greek god, Pax Nemesis. Or we get the idea of somebody being our nemesis. It's from this Greek god, Nemesis. So Pax Nemesis is on the backside. So every time you flipped a coin, it was, you know, heads, it's Claudius, uh, tails, it's Nemesis. Because he wanted to let you know the gods put him here. The gods killed Caligulus. The gods wanted me in control, so do not question my authority. Now, into that environment, the Christians are going to try and live out, convert, and share a message of hope. But it gets even more challenging. They found an inscription, even going back a, a few emperors, to Augustus. It's in this book called The Statues, Ancient Roman Statues. And here is what is inscribed on the statue of Augustus. Sense the providence that has divinely created us, has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom they filled with all perfect virtues for the benefit of all people, giving him to us and our descendants as our Savior. He's put an end to war. He's caused eternal peace. Well, sure, the Romans conquered everybody. That's why there's no more war. Caesar, by his epiphany, outdid all other Gospels. And his nature will not allow a greater gospel in the future. The birthday 
of the most divine Augustus Caesar is the day we should set on par with the beginning of everything. Everything was chaos and he restored order. He gave a new look to the world, which would have been destroyed had he not been born. The day of the birth of the God Augustus was the beginning of this gospel. For this reason, the Greeks of Asia declare the new year begins on the 23rd of September from this day forward. For it is the birthday of the God and all time will be marked by this day. No other gospels but the Roman gospel. No other gods but the emperor who is God. And into this environment, the Thessalonians are going to live. They're going to influence. And they're going to try and live without compromise in the midst of this kind of pressure. And they're going to be pushed one way. They're going to be pushed another way. But Paul says, I want to make sure that you can stand firm in the midst of it. One way to think about this, if you want to have a flashback to one of your favorite toys growing up, it would be like this. The disciples weeble and they wobble, but they don't fall down. Do you remember weeble wobbles? They're little eggs. And no matter what you did, they'd go back and forth, but they always came back standing. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He says, I want to establish you to encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be able or be shaken by these afflictions. Yes, there's going to be pressure from the government. There's going to be pressure from society. There's going to be temptation to, to move in a certain direction. But I want you to be so firm that you come back to, to ground zero, to knowing that you won't fall down in your faith. He's going to give three major movements in this passage on how to have weeble-wobble faith, the kind of won't-fall-down faith. He's going to talk about how to inspect, how to expect, and how to affect. And in doing that, he's going to create in you and I a sense of resilience, that whatever we're up against, even Caesar Augustus, you can stand firm in the midst of it. That you, God, will grow you like a, a tree with deep, deep roots of faith if you will grow those roots. And it will provide shade for you, for your family, and for future generations if you will deepen and develop this kind of weeble-wobble faith that God has for you. It might weeble, it may wobble, but it won't fall down. The first step is to inspect verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore... When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Again, do you see why that word gospel had so much power? This word was forbidden to be used. There's no other gospels allowed except for the gospel of the emperor. So Paul, in using the word gospel over and over again, is saying, just as the king comes as an official edict from the king is the gospel, our king is the real king, and he brings the real gospel. God is here, and God is reigning, and God is in control, and God has a plan, and this was blasphemy. You see, that word gospel is a lot like hail to the chief. You can only use that song for the president of the United States. You are only allowed to use the gospel when talking about the emperor or official edicts from the emperor. And yet the Christians come and say, not only are we going to use that word, but we have the real king. In fact, sometimes people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. You know, Jesus Christ is his last name. But Christ is actually his title. So Jesus is his name, or Yeshua. Christ is his title. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So this is the good news, the gospel, the message of the anointed one, the real king, the real emperor, the real commander. 
In fact, in five weeks, we're going to start a series called uh, String of Pearls in the book of Mark. And I'm going to unpack some other things about the term Christ that is just amazing. So here we have this idea that Timothy is on his way to the Thessalonians and he's going to inspect their faith and make sure that they are tied into the gospel of the real king in hopes that Timothy is going to come and help them to establish deep roots and encourage you concerning your faith. And there it is, to inspect your faith. He's coming on a faith inspection. And if your faith is small, he's going to help grow it more. If if your faith has small roots, he's going to help deepen those roots to establish you in those things. So that you will not be shaken by these afflictions. Now look, he presumes we're going to have afflictions. We'll get into that in the next passage. But he's saying, are you inspecting your faith? See, for many of us, we encounter difficulty. We get knocked down, but we stay down because it rips all of our roots out. We weevil and we wobble and we do fall down. Help, I fall and I can't get up. That's what many Christians are like. And God says, well, before you get to the place where life pushes you over, you need to come back and inspect your own faith. So Paul sent Timothy to go and inspect their faith, but he's asking us, I think, to inspect our own and to invest in other people, inspect other people's faith and say, how can I help you when the pressures of life come that you'll be able to stand firm? And what's the power of standing firm? It's in the gospel, the good news, the power of this message. I was having a dinner, I think, about a month ago, and a guy was talking about how he felt God was calling him to invest in other people, like Timothy was, to help establish and encourage other people's faith. I said, well, tell me about that. His name was Tad. He said, well, I, uh, I love working with other business people, and I love taking them through the Bible together. I love seeing their eyes come alive when they discover who Christ is in the Bible. But I got this one guy I've been building a relationship with for, I don't know, five, ten years, he said, and just things aren't going into spiritual conversations, hardly ever. He said, well, it took a turn a couple months ago where he suddenly asked a spiritual question after years and years of investment. And we're having this deep two-hour spiritual conversation and nothing like that before. And at the end, he said, you know, I really, I really would like to know at least what's in the Bible. I say I don't believe it, but I don't even know what's in it. And he said, Chad, you know, um, I picked up the Fast Track Bible books that you guys gave out uh, a couple years ago. We, we made this resource to the church. He said, I gave it to him. I said, well, you could read through the whole Bible in 90 minutes. Would you like to do it? And he said, I'd love to do that. He said, I actually am taking a lot of road trips. So he got the uh, CD version, listened to the CD version. And he told me the story of a dinner. He said he came back after this long trip and he listened to the entire Bible, um, overview of the Bible. And he, he said, man, I, I really want to dig into this and get into this thing. And he said, as I began to see somebody unconvinced become aware of and excited about the Bible, all of a sudden my faith got established more too. He said, my whole life I've been in my comfort zone of establishing people who are in a similar socioeconomic background to me. But God's really challenging me to invest in people who are at a different place in life and society than I am. I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, I've been investing in this kid. His name's Torrance uh, for the last year and a half. And he got in a lot of trouble with a drug deal. He's from, I think, the inner city of uh, of Cincinnati. He stood before the judge for this drug deal, and the the judge came down really hard. First-time offense, we gave him two years in prison. So he got shipped up to, I think it was London, Ohio. And mom was devastated. Family was devastated. And I was trying to help get him on the right path, faith in God, establish that. But he got thrown in prison. Well, about a year into his prison term, he called me and said, could we try and petition the judge to get some leniency to get this reduced? 
He said, I'm a judge. I said, I'm a lawyer. I've got a lot of friends who are lawyers. And so I decided to help work the system down in Hamilton. I said, you know, usually these are thrown out. I brought the case before the judge. The judge looked at it and gave him a hearing. So I stood on his behalf and said, I know this kid. I've invested in this kid. It's a first-time offense. I, I run a jobs program. If you will make mandatory upon his release to go through my program, I will make sure that I establish him and grow him and help him. And unlike the judge's previous track record, he goes, you know what? That sounds pretty good. We'll make, let him be released. So he calls up the family. They're ecstatic, but they don't know if it's going to be days, weeks, or months before he's released. It's now Christmas Eve, just a month and a half ago. On Christmas Eve, he gets a phone call. It's from Terrence. I'm in Columbus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am free. I am free, but I need a ride. Can you get me home? So he's there at a family dinner with all the comfort and all the people who've come in having Christmas dinner. And he says, I will be right there. I'm going to drive two hours up to Columbus and back. But before he gets in the car to do that, he gets on a phone call and he calls Terrence's mom. Mom, I want to let you know something. What's going on? Terrence will be home tonight. She bursts into tears. She's wailing. She's sobbing with happiness so much. Oh, my son's going home. Her daughter who's living with her doesn't even know what's going on. She thinks she's mad. She gets on the phone. What did you say to my mom? I said, your, your brother's coming home tonight. Oh, in tears. And he drove up, got Terrence and drove him back and is working with establishing and rooting his faith. And what he told me is, I never realized that investing in someone who's in a different place than me in their faith would grow my faith. And this is such a great picture of the gospel. That when we were imprisoned to our own wrongdoing and we could not get ourselves out, we need an advocate. Jesus became our advocate. Jesus stood in the gap before the judge and said, I will establish them. I will forgive them. I will take the punishment. And then he goes and he rescues us and he works with us. He leaves his own comfort of his own home in heavens and he comes in to dwell with us. And the gospel should have an emotional impact on us. We should say, oh, that he, the God of gods, did this for me. And then we say, if he did this for me, how can I not deepen this faith and establish this faith? So how's your faith doing today? Are you encouraging growth in your faith? Are you deepening the roots and establishing it? Are you encouraging other people's faith? Is the gospel, what God did for you emotionally, not just intellectually, but emotionally, grabbing your heart these days? If not, dig deeper. Inspect your faith and let God overwhelm you with his love. But the second thing, Paul sort of hints at it here with this word afflictions. He says the second way you grow, weeble wobble, but don't fall down faith is to not inspect your faith, but to expect great suffering. Expect great suffering. Now, let me tell you why this is. Expectations drive emotions. Depending on what you expect... What happens can make you happy and joyful and thankful, or the exact same circumstance can make you miserable and negative and sad. Expectations drive emotions. So if you struggle with your emotions, the Bible comes back and says, well, look at your expectations. Now, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Peter says, do not be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. And yet every time bad things happen, what happens? We're surprised. And we get mad at God, we get mad at the world. God says, no, I want you to expect great suffering in a world where the forces of of light and dark and good and bad are at war with each other. 
Expectations drive our emotions. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Let me try and prove it to you. Imagine you, like Terrence, have been sentenced to 50 years in prison for what you've done. Your lawyer comes to you and says, not only are you going to go to prison, unfortunately, they're putting you in the worst prison in the United States. It's the most unclean. It's the most unsanitary. People die in their rooms and they aren't even found for a week. Because of the toiletry that is in the room, the bacteria, many people die of sickness, not just of neglect, not just of the prison. The beds are horrible. You sleep actually on the, the floor itself. And you're going to spend the next 50 years in this place. I'm going to show you a picture of, of this prison in just a second. So you might want to look away. But this is where you're about to spend 50 years of your life. And you open the door and this is what you see. It's a Motel 6. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, that's not that bad. I got an air conditioner. I got, I got a TV. I got pillows. Whew. And all of a sudden, the expectation of I expected it one way. And all of a sudden, wow, okay, that's better than I thought. Now, the contrast with a different accommodation. You and your fiancé have just gotten married. It's about a week before the wedding. And a benefactor comes to you and says, hey, I have watched you guys. I appreciate you guys. I know you don't have a lot of money. I'm going to give you a honeymoon at America's premier resort. It was voted the most romantic place in, in the United States. It's got a 10 out of 10 on cleanliness, customer service. It is declared the place in Bridal Magazine that if you could afford it, you would love to go there. And so you are so excited. You say your vows. You have the party. You get in the car. You drive to the hotel. You walk in the door. Your husband picks you up. He's carrying you over the threshold. You open the door, and this is what you see. Motel 6. Now you're angry, you're mad, you're frustrated, you're disappointed. Why? Because expectations drive emotions, which is why Paul says, expect great suffering. Let no one be shaken by afflictions. Okay, well, how do you do that? For you yourself know. In other words, this is something you mentally need to keep reinforcing in your head. You need to remind yourselves. I know this. You know it. But you need to keep knowing it more deeply. That we, as Christians, are appointed to this. To what? To affliction. We're appointed to suffer affliction in a world of good and evil where the prince of the power of the air is against us. We're appointed to this. Expect great suffering. See the world as a battlefield, not as Disney World. And that will set up your expectations to know that he is the comforter in the midst of it. He is fighting for me in the midst of it. It doesn't set you up for, for disillusionment. It sets you up to prepare for reality. For in fact, he says, we told you this. We told you to expect great suffering. Before when we were with you. So we prepared you in advance. And now it's happening. That we would suffer tribulation. Just as it happened. And you know. But the problem is we go back. We say, well, no, God, but you shouldn't let this happen. God says, no, I told you it was going to happen. But our mind changes expectations to God owes me. Uh, this really is Disneyland. It's not a war zone. And God says, no, it's a war zone. It's a war zone. Expect great tribulation. And I will equip you in the midst of it. But it's a battlefield. Be prepared for it. I think what God's trying to prepare us for is how we can, in a world of difficulty and temptation and pressure, we're going to be pushed. We're going to weevil. We're going to wobble. But we've got to remind ourselves we're not going to fall down because we have a, the overcomer living in us. And that's what I think he's preparing us for in the midst of that. Now, to give you an idea of how hard this was for the Thessalonians, 
I get a chance to visit, it wasn't Thessalonica, but an area, a marketplace that they would have experienced. So what does it look like for you to expect, expect great suffering and still stand up for God in the midst of it? A real challenge. This is what a marketplace would have looked like in the Greek-Roman world. People would have set up in the middle section there all of their different marketplaces. This is uh, the group that I went with. We're actually seeing the ruins of what's left of uh, a Greek-Roman marketplace. Well, as you came into the marketplace, the whole marketplace, you were doing business on behalf of the emperor. You were doing business on behalf of the Greek gods or Roman gods. So you, in order to make money, had to step into an arena, a pluralistic society that said your God was nonsense and that when you made your money, you had to give tribute to say, I am now in Zeus's court. I'm now in Apollo's court. I'm now in Asclepius's court. I am doing business thanks to the beneficial providence of the gods or the emperor. And yet this is where you worked. I'll zoom in a couple of these pictures here. So this fountain, for example... Uh, almost certainly was the Greek god Asclepius, because he was known as the living water. Interesting about Asclepius, his father was a god and his mother was a mortal, so he was the god-man. He was part god, part man. He was one of us. And so the Greeks looked at him as the one who could relate to us, and when they went to do business, they said, thank goodness for Asclepius, the living water. Thank goodness for Asclepius, the, the healer. He is the one that allows us to do business. So now you're setting up shop here in Asclepius' business place. What do you do? Well, here this yellow arrow, these little shops over here. I see lots of them. Um, here's where we were in this section. You can see the, uh, there's a little one here, there's one here, and there's one here. So these little shops were set up, just like up top area here. And in the bottom of your shop, you'd have a seat maybe in the back corner. You'd sit there, and you would be making your dye or selling your product in the midst of every other marketplace said, we serve Asclepius, we serve the emperor, we serve the real God, we have the real gospel. Now, how bold would it be for you to say that you served a different God in the midst of that? Incredibly difficult. And how do you do it in a way that's attractive and draws people in rather than just you know, being a, an angry, annoying Christian like many of us know? How do you work the lines of, those, of being bold but also being winsome? Well, as they uncovered one of these uh, marketplaces we looked at, they actually had marked on the outside of their shop a menorah. In other words, we're here right in the midst of the world, in Asclepius' world, Apollo's world, Zeus' world, and yet we are marking that this shop recognizes the God of the Torah. Now, they used a little symbolism, right? So if you didn't know what the menorah meant, it'd be like, well, what's that all about? And the Christian fish would eventually use that as well, because uh, the fish stands for ichthus, and each of the letters of ichthus stand for Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's why the Christian fish was a code word for the Christian doctrine. So there are ways in which the Christians found ways to say, we serve another God, we're going to do excellent business and draw people into it. And yet while we do it, we're going to know we're in a world where we expect great suffering. But then Paul goes on to say, not only should you expect suffering, but in the midst of that, don't go hide in a holy huddle. We want you to affect others. We want to affect others. So now, but now, Timothy has come to us from you. I love this idea. They sent Timothy to Paul, and now Paul is going to send Timothy to them. I think this is such a great picture, as you'll see in the next verse as well, of what happens when you begin to invest in other people. You invest in establishing somebody's faith, they grow, and your faith grows because of it. As you see them grow, you're so glad because you deepen. 
And then you begin to invest more in them. They invest in you. Then you begin to invest in others. Look how he says it. You sent Timothy to us and brought us good news of your faith. So Paul has now impacted, affected them. They have a deeper faith and they have a deeper love. And that you always have good remembrance of us. Not just of our message, but you remember how we invested in you, how we sacrificed for you, the time we gave to tell you about our God. Greatly desiring to see us. This was, this was more than just, I went through the four spiritual laws, check. We had a relationship. You wanted to see us. We wanted to see you. We shared our lives with each other. And we also have, the, we feel the same way towards you. We want to see you as well. Therefore, brethren, you're in affliction and distress, so are we. Brethren, in our, our affliction and all our distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. And here it is again. Their faith had been inspected. They had expected tribulation. Paul did too. But when they saw how the Thessalonians were living out their faith, weebling and wobbling but not falling down, they were encouraged. Now this is so practical. Because when you begin to share how God is working in the midst of maybe you got a diagnosis of cancer and you're going through that cancer and you share that story with somebody, somebody else is going to be comforted because they're saying, boy, I'm going through cancer or I'm about to. And I'm seeing how God is showing up in your life. And if God can show up in your life during that circumstance, I'm confident that God could fight for me too. You begin to share how you're having prodigal sons and daughters and they are not going on the right path and, and your heart is broken. And as you share that story, somebody else says, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, I'm comforted. I'm being affected by your authenticity of sharing your story because I need to know that there is a God who loves me and is working with me. And I'm praying that God is going to parent the kids that I can no longer parent because they're outside of my influence. When you affect others, just by sharing your authentic story, it comforts them, it encourages them, it affects them. And it becomes this chicken and the egg loop where you affect somebody and they affect you. And the gospel and the power of it, power of it begins to establish us. That's what he says. We were comforted concerning you. For now we live when you stand fast in the Lord. And here again is that idea of you weeble and you wobble. There's stress and affliction, but you don't fall down. And one of the greatest ways you can grow is influencing other people, stepping outside of your own world and saying, I want to help somebody who will give me nothing in return. It's so counter to our culture. I want to affect somebody who's unconvinced about my message. I want to affect somebody who doesn't believe the way I do. I want to affect somebody who can never give me anything in return. You know, we're in the middle of sign-ups right now for a, an endeavor we do every year for the last five years called Feed My Starving Children. So uh, if you're interested in that, you can go to our website, horizoncc.com. So what we do is we pack 250 to 300,000 meals in about four days. And every year we have folks who come in. They say, I invited my neighbor who's unconvinced about God, Bible, or Jesus. They've driven by this Castle Grayskull that is Horizon. They've, they've come by Hogwarts and they've said, oh, that church, I don't know what's going on. I don't believe that stuff. And I'm sure they're all about themselves. But they heard we were going to feed 300,000 meals to the little kids in the Philippines. And they said, that's interesting to me that you're willing to affect others. And they come and give two hours of their life. And at the end of those two hours, there will be an entire family that will eat for a year because of what you did for those two hours. And people every year bring unconvinced friends. 
and they see Christians aren't quite as weird as they thought. They begin to see people who are enjoying each other, people who are serving one another, serving people who they'll never even meet. And they're so impacted by that. The unconvinced neighbors who come, they say, you know, I want to check out Hogwarts. I want to go see if Chad looks like Gandalf. Actually, not Gandalf. I'm mixing metaphors here. And what happens is when people see Christians caring and affecting others, they're drawn to our God. They're drawn to the good news giver that we have. A couple of years ago, we were doing Feed My Starving Children, and Sig Torres came up to me and said, oh, this was one of the most meaningful times of my life. I said, why is that? She said, well, I just found out that the 300,000 meals we're packing this year are going to the Philippines, because every year it goes to a different place. I said, why is that significant? She said, well, you may not know this, but I'm from the Philippines. That's why I didn't know that. She said, not only am I from the Philippines, but uh, I was a starving child in the Philippines, and I didn't have any food, and I didn't know if I was going to make it. But I had somebody came and gave me a little pack of rice. That was the one meal I had every day. And that's what sustained me and my family. And, and between the faith of other people packing these meals for me and then some business opportunities from P&G who, who allowed me to get educated and get my first job, I really got ripped out of poverty because of the industry of entrepreneurship and the faith of people. And the chance I have to give back to the same little girls like me in my hometown, I just can't tell you how thankful I am to God for what he's done in my life. That's how the gospel can work. Because of what God has done unto me through others, I want to go and do unto others as well. That's how we affect other people. And it grows us. So what does it look like for you and I to affect others through authentic living? We're honest about our struggles. We're honest about our difficulty. We're bragging on God and how he's showing up. We're struggling with, with where God isn't showing up. And it's beginning to affect others and grow our faith. When you do that... Inspect your faith. Expect great suffering, but affect others. That is where God develops this, what I call, weeble-wobble faith. You won't fall down because you're deepening your roots. So ask yourself, are you building today? Will you build this week? Will you put habits in place this week that will deepen your faith? I want to encourage you to pick one habit. One habit this week that you're going to use to deepen or establish your faith. I don't know what that might be. For some of us, it might be scripture. You know, I have not had a good scripture memory uh, system in my life for two or three years. So part of the cards that we gave out, if you didn't get one last couple weeks, they're out in the foyer, was different verses in Thessalonians that you can memorize. So I'm also reading a book on habits for the next series we're doing and the exploring series. It talks about the importance of cues for setting new habits. So when I get in the car every morning, I immediately turn on the radio and I drive to work with the radio on. So I have put these memory cards right on my dashboard. Uh, right in front of the speedometer. And so I get in my car every morning. I immediately turn the radio on. I go to see how fast I'm going. And I go, oh, that's right. And I turn the radio off. And I spend that time in the morning thanking God for what he's doing in my life. I've been doing this for the last month now. Uh, I thank God and pray for my family. And then I'm trying to memorize these verses. So the one I'm working on this week is, uh, do not quench the spirit of God. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good and, do, and abstain from all types of evil. I'm trying to meditate on that as this habit. All day long, God, I don't want to quench what you're doing. All day long, God, what does it mean to hold fast to what is good? Am I abstaining from the big evils or all kinds of evil? God, I want to be in, in step with you. And maybe your habit is scripture memory. And this can be a tool for you. Maybe your, your habit is getting to know the Bible. And maybe one of our free resources would, would be helpful for you. 
Maybe for you, it's having a routine of getting into the Word daily or weekly, journaling. Maybe it's expectation training. You say, Chad, I'm really overcome by anger or disappointment or negativity. And the habit for you is to start journaling. I was mad. What was my expectation? I have an expectation that my kids should always obey. Why do I have that expectation? My theology says that people are sinners. But my expectation says they shouldn't sin. Or maybe yours is I feel disappointed when my kids disobey because I feel like a bad mom. What's your expectation? That your identity as a mom is tied to your kids' obedience? That's a bad expectation, my friends. You're going to be miserable for a long time. Versus my kids will disobey, and that's a chance not to take it personally, but to put boundaries in place to help grow them and train them. See, that expectation will bring you freedom. And that might be the habit you put in place, expectation training. Maybe it's discipline. Maybe it's um, prayer. Whatever it is. Maybe it's serving, like Tad did, like Sig did. It's stepping outside and saying, I want to serve somebody who can never give me something in return. Because I want to do the kind of loving that God does. Whatever you do, God wants you to have resilience and faith and roots that come from the kind of faith that weebles and wobbles but doesn't fall down. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the incredible power we have in Jesus. Thank you for the way Paul wrote to challenge us to grow and to deepen ourselves. And may we be a serving community, a loving community, yet a warrior community that can stand up under suffering. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week. If you came prepared to give, there's offering boxes on your way out. Thanks again.